Welcome to Complaints on a Podcast, the real, actual podcast that really exists in the world. And evidence of that is growing every day. Just just recently, we've had the latest piece of evidence that shows that this is a real podcast, which is that in an actual real book that exists in the world, Heather has been quoted and it says, Heather of Complaints on a Podcast. And that book is Weaponizing Anti-Semitism by Asa Wynn Stanley. And Asa Wynn Stanley joins us now. Hello, Asa. Hello, Daniel. Hello, everyone. Nice to be with you. Yeah, everyone, oh, everyone else is here as well. Lovely to have you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, uh, Weaponizing Anti-Semitism. What I liked about it was, I think for people on this channel, a lot of it, personally, I knew quite well. I think a lot of our listeners would know, but... There were a lot of stuff that I didn't know that we'll get into. It was quite interesting. But mm. what I liked about it was that there's been so much, so much of the information about what, what you've written about, about the sort of the narrative around anti-Semitism and what sort of come to light countering that narrative in the last few years. It's all kind of come in little bits here and there. And some of it, you're not sure exactly if it's correct, what to believe, what's right. Mm. And I think it, what it does is it really sort of clearly shows how the narrative was created uh, in the first place while Corbyn was leader, the sort of, you know, this huge idea about this massive crisis of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And then how that's sort of slowly being revealed to be basically bullshit. Uh, And I think that's that's really important that you have like a book like this that you can kind of follow that because we've tried to do podcasts on it and some of them have been hopefully quite helpful, but it just, it's very hard to put it all together. And I think you've done a really good job in that regard. Oh, thank you for saying that, Daniel. It's good to hear that. That's what I was going for. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I faced the same problem that I've reported like you on this podcast. I've reported on it a lot over the years. I, I mean, I reported on it all the way through from 2015 and there's so much, there was so much, uh, can we swear on this podcast? I think you can. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. There's so much shit that happened <laughs> um, that it's impossible to keep track of it all. And I don't write everything that happened in the book because that would be impossible. But I tried to show the most, um, what I thought were indicative examples and the most sort of high profile examples. And I tried to, yeah, lay out the key points in what happened just for history really and to hopefully maybe maybe start a conversation about how to avoid something like that happening again in the future I I don't really have all the answers for that but I hope that we can sort of at least hopefully start to learn some of the lessons And, and you know even I when I same as you like I I mean I thought I knew I thought I knew it all. <laughs> but when you actually sit down and, and write, you know, start to write the story from beginning to end, I had, you know, I had to choose what went into it. And then as you write, you start to realize other things and make other connections. So it was Yeah. It was good well, I mean, I've I've made videos about it and we call it the never-ending story. Yeah. Because it's this rolling narrative that any everything else that happens to the left is sort of swept up in particularly in the UK and and, and the Labour Party and um, you're saying yeah you didn't know what parts to add I imagine you didn't know exactly when to end the story right because uh, obviously it's fallout might be the longest chapter and obviously that 
is open-ended in itself. And just this week, or was it last week, we've had this Roger Waters malarkey going on. And it just seems like every month or so, there's something that would actually, that comes out that feeds into it's this. Not, it's not every month. I started doing a list at one stage because one of the videos I thought of doing was just doing an update. And it was every few days. Mm. Like literally, there's something happens all the time. It's kind of relentless. And that also, that's just the visible stuff. Like, I, I yeah. guess you're aware as well, like I am. There'll be people who'll come to you and say, this has happened or that's happened. And it's not public. So a lot of this stuff is going under the radar. Exactly. And it's, it's happening multiple times every day with councillors and members and, and stuff, as well as the high profile stuff. Like the, yeah, yeah, this is, the, the, there's there's really you know this is the, the book is a tip of the iceberg in a lot of ways absolutely there was so much stuff so much told so many stories over the years you know a lot of them that like, i couldn't wasn't even allowed to report people were talking to me on background they were too intimidated but i i say that you know i mentioned some cases of that in the book of students or younger people sometimes who talked about talked to me about it on the phone and then when it came down to it wouldn't go on the record just because of jobs or you know future in the Labour Party or future out, out of the Labour Party just just careers and things like that and it was um yeah it was a really it was really hard to know I mean I, I it, was, it was hard you're right Daniel it was hard to know where to end the book and I just had to cut it off at a certain point and it just the whole process of editing every time we we did a new edit of the book you know, whether it was a substantial edit or a copy edit or legal advice, there was there was a temptation to add more stuff, but I had to keep it to, you know, the most yeah. important points. Well, we'll get into, I really want to talk about, there's a few things I want to get into a bit later. Ruth Smith, got to have a whole section on Ruth Smith. That'll be fun. Uh, there was, what I thought was interesting that we'll touch on is like woke rhetoric, like the, the way that you talk about the tactic to sort of use progressive language um, as part of the argument. Uh, one thing you omitted, and I think would be good to have in Labour, would just be mention Mike Gapes. Just having, st I don't know how <laughs> I could just get him in somehow. We're, we're not, we're guilty of it on this podcast. We don't talk about him enough, but I think we should mention him every episode. Uh, and, but, but what I want to start with um, is how you start in the book, which is looking at, I don't want to get too much into the actual cases that you talk about, uh, the university university college union case, uh, mm. which is a sort basically kind of mini anti-Semitism crisis, sort of mirroring what later happens in the Labour Party, and I just want to talk about that because I want to talk about the sort of broad ways that the campaign against the union, um, what was sort of done in that campaign, and how that mm. happens in the Labour Party, and how that sort of happens all over the place. Uh, because when we talk about the anti-Semitism crisis in Labour, you know, you talk about the media narrative that there was this big crisis um, and there was loads of anti-Semites. Uh, and then you, there's this idea of denialism that people didn't believe that was the case. What you put in your book is the arguments for why people deny it, why people think that something else was afoot, right? That it wasn't just that people were just being honest when they said that it was overwhelmed with anti-Semites. They had to leave the party. They were so scared, right? This is like some of the arguments for what you think was actually happening in the Labour Party to sort of foster this 
this narrative, right? So, I, yeah, I'd like to look at um, two things that you bring up early on, and then you sort of show how that work, how that go, they go on. That go, I don't want to say they, you know, the the people that do the uh, the evil works, the Jews. No, sorry, the not them. <laughs> although some of them are, some of them aren't. But yeah, the them. Israeli <laughs> them. <laughs> Jewish. This is a sixty-seven percent Jewish podcast, right? So, <laughs> like, well, we're we're pretty good here, right? Yeah, but we're the wrong sort of Jews, so don't count. <laughs> we're not the conspiring sort. Yeah. Well, we'll I want to get into talking about. Am that I allowed well, to yeah. laugh at these jokes? Is that, is that? Well, I've done it now. So. It's all right. You can try that lame party. There's nothing else yeah, I can do. Like to do. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we we can make the jokes, but you can't laugh. You just have to sit there like, no, this is not on. <laughs> um, all right, so, uh, yeah. So for one of the things you talk about is lawfare. Mm. Uh, and the other one, I think, is, yes, the uh, like the accusation of denialism. Yeah, um, can you define lawfare? Because I think it's, for a lot of people, it's quite confusing. It took a while before I got my head around what it was. Yeah, I mean, lawfare is just essentially the use of lawyers to harass, usually activists, but anyone really. I mean, that that's it in a nutshell. That it's um, it's a strategy to, and sometimes that is the actual term that they that they use. So I, there's a organization. Who, who are they? Me. Who do you mean by they? What's <laughs> no, that? Well, it, it it could be anyone. You know, it could be right wing lobbyists. Um, it it could be. So you mean the it people be, that use the tactic? It could be any, yeah. yeah, it could be anyone who has lawyers, basically, <laughs> that, <laughs> who has got money and lawyers that they're, they're using it to sort of suppress free speech or to, to suppress um, grassroots activism. Uh, and there's an organization actually called the Lawfare Project. Um, I believe it's in the States. I, I, you know, I know my colleagues at Electronic Intifada have written about it, so I, I'm not... I'm not that familiar with it. I know it's, um, I think it must be at least partly involved in the Israel lobby, if not in other issues, but it, it essentially it's a strategy that the Israel lobby and other right-wing organizations and groups use a fair bit because, you know, when you've not got popular support for your, you know, agenda, you need some, you need to do something. And quite often that is, using lawfare so you know it's it's a kind of a broad term which could could mean anything from um you know suing people for libel to just tying people up in bad headlines uh so the ucu thing that you um alluded to you mentioned a bit earlier was a was a good example of that in the book yeah so in that particular case um there was what 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 exactly was the sort of charge against the uh, the yeah. union? Um, yeah. And yeah, how, why would you call that lawfare? Exactly, how did it work in that way? Okay, so the university and college union was it came together as an amalgam of two predecessor unions, and I, I forget their names now, but they um, before they united into one union. This, was there was... I know what this because I was in them. So it's NAPFI and AUT, right? So okay. it's the, the union that represented universities, traditional universities, and the union represented polytechnics and colleges of further education. Right. So they came together into one big old 
you know, university college union, which was supposed to be for all kind of educators. Uh, and um, be, before that amalgamation, there was dis discussion and, the, and debate um, within the unions of the possibility, you know, Palestine solidarity activists within the union, quite a lot of them Jewish, incidentally, people like Darth and Rosenhead and so forth, who are now in uh, Jewish Voice for Labour, um, were trying to encourage debate within the union about joining the academic boycott of Israel. So supporting boycott of Israeli academic institutions that are complicit in the, uh, in the Israeli occupation, in the military occupation of Palestinians in the West Bank and so forth, and the apartheid state of Israel. And incidentally, the, the academic boycott of Israel is quite narrow, it's quite strict, it's quite disciplined. It's not like so the, the, the South Africa boycott, the, you know, during the apartheid era, the boycott of, um, of South Africa was, was very broad. It was basically boycotting anything South African. Um, but the the uh, according to the you know the Palestinian bodies the the, boy, the BDS National Committee and its its academic advisory body PACB, it's very it's very narrow. It's it doesn't boycott all Israelis. It doesn't boycott all Israeli academics. It boycotts complicit Israeli institutions, academic institutions. Okay, be that as it may, there was this there was this discussion within the within the union, and. Basically, the Israel lobby just went hell for leather to crush this, and they did it through lawfare. And then they they um, they carried out a um, uh, there was this legal case taken out against the UCU for um, what they alleged was discrimination, namely, and this will sound familiar, institutional anti-Semitism. This was the term that they that they used. And when I say they, <laughs> the Israel lobby in this case was an alliance of various pro-Israel groups in the UK, um, the, with, mainly led by the uh, Jewish Leadership Council, which was at the time, the chief executive was Jeremy Newmark, who later became the chairperson of the Jewish labor movement lab, the, within the Labour Party. Um, and, yeah, so there's uh, an amazing crossover between people that are in these organizations and then sort of move into the Labour Party when Corbyn becomes leader and they and they see him as someone that they would like to use these kind of tactics on. But stay, staying with the, the UCU, so this was an internal discussion in the union about whether they were going to back a boycott. But these organizations that sort of sort of labeled the union as having some problem with anti-Semitism being institutionally anti-Semitic, they're outside the union. For the most part, yes. Okay. So they, they had kind of a front man, um, a, a, a pro-Israel activist named Ronnie Fraser, who was a member of the union. He was um, he was a retired uh, retired maths lecturer, you know. So as you know, he was a legitimate member of the union. But behind him, he had all this, you know, apparatus. And I I saw it, you know, I saw it in court. I, I actually reported from court. Um, at the time, and I, and there was all these people in suits, you know, and it's like, who the hell are all these people? I wasn't, uh, this was, you know, back in 2012, um, uh, and I wasn't as, 2011, 2012, because it went on for a long time, uh, I wasn't as familiar uh, with the Israel lobby um, then as I am now, 
um and uh yeah it was it was sort of a an education process and their barrister was um anthony julius who's prince princess diana's lawyer divorce lawyer um one of the partners of mishkon Dureya, um this really high profile law firm which has also incidentally acted for the state of israel in other cases so it was a it was an odd case because the the, the forum chosen for it was actually um, an employment tribunal, which I've never fully understood because what it was, it, it, it was, you know, lawyers tried to explain it to me, but it, it still doesn't make really much sense to me, but I, I guess this is just the way it's done. Um, the, the, uh, um, Ronnie Fraser, who I mentioned as the front man for this case, um, he was a member of this union. So he was taking the, apparently the former forum if you want to sue your union for discrimination is an employment tribunal so but it you know it was a real court it had a panel of um it had a panel of judges three three uh, a, a judge and two uh executioners yeah. yeah so it was um and the verdict was quite devastating uh as in there was no case there right they threw it out yeah exactly it was absolutely like <laughs> it lost comprehensively like it's still you know a decade and this was 2013 the verdict was ruled and you know we we still read it decades later it's, it makes a fun read <laughs> because they, they it says i mean it basically accused i mean judges are not exactly known for forthright language but it basically accuses jeremy newmark of being a liar you know it says he gave untrue evidence um and preposterous some of what he said was preposterous and on all this kind of stuff. Um, so on a, in a legal, it, on, in legal terms, it lost like shatteringly so. But, and this is a, the, a really key point, I think, for lessons for uh, the Labour Party, which the Labour Party under Corbyn never really learned, never at all learned, unfortunately, um, is that it, although it technically lost, it was kind of a success because the, the point was really to drag it out. The point was to create bad headlines for the union and to get it to back down. And, um, you know, we don't, we don't see any academic boycott of Israel within the UCU now. So, mm, yeah. And, and it's interesting because it strikes me that, like, that was a time when you hadn't got this big national narrative about anti-Semitism and the problem with it and how, you know, we all have to, like, take it very seriously as, like, um, it's rising and it's difficult. And and do you think the judgment would be different now because that narrative would then impact the way in which the evidence was seen? I, I think, yeah, like you're right. Jeremy Mark is a liar. It's quite a difficult thing to say now, really. Yeah. Um, I think that it would be very difficult. I mean, you know, the, the British legal system is on a bit of a rampage right now. Uh, against activists in general, um, but I think it would. I, I think in general, yeah, I, because of all this atmosphere of the anti-Semitism smears, it would be very difficult for that verdict to be reached. Now, it would it would be very hard. And actually, when the verdict was reached, the response of Jeremy Newmark and and people like David Hirsch, um, who uh, sorry, David Hurst, not David Hirsch. David Hurst, the Goldsmiths University uh, lecturer, who's um, incredibly pro-Israel from, you know, an ostensibly liberal viewpoint, allegedly, um, were 
their response was basically to say, oh, well, the judge is anti-Semitic. Not in so many words, but that was basically what they were saying. Um, and so, and that's where the denialism comes in, mm. right? So yeah. you, you start this this. I suppose you set off the narrative by by making a, a legal case that there is an issue at a at an institution. There's an, there's an issue with anti-Semitism against me and as an as an individual, or against a handful of people, or because of some of the uh, positions they're taking politically, and yeah. then. Any fight back against that is part of the problem of anti-Semitism in that. Let's do, exactly. Now they're denying there is a problem. So it's a bigger problem than we even thought. And it was exactly the same thing. And if you looked at the, the, the so-called evidence of what actually happened, you get into the nitty gritty of it. And I reported it uh, for Electronic Intervada at the time. Um, it was really ridiculous. Like Jeremy Newmark was trying to say that, um, uh, you know, Ronnie Fraser was being shouted down and that... Jeremy Newmark uh, had been denied entry to the UCU conference floor because he, he was visibly Jewish and wearing a skull cap. Um, well, it turned out there was um, audio recordings which the, the judges listened to, and that's what they called preposterous because it turned out he wasn't booed, jeered, or insulted at all. They listened to his pro-Israel speech and let him do his speech, and then the other side gave their contribution to debate. Um, Jeremy Newmark was denied entry to the uh, UCU conference floor because he wasn't a, a, a delegate to UCU conference, so he didn't have the proper credentials. He was trying to say he was denied entry to, to uh, conference as a Jew, which was completely untrue and what the judge called preposterous. So it was, it was um, you know, it was a very deliberate sort of smear campaign. Yeah, I yeah I mean, it's, it's, oh God, sorry. No, I was gonna say, I mean, what really struck me reading it is that ultimately, although the judge is quite damning, it really didn't matter. They still worked that into their campaign. And something I look into quite a lot is domestic violence dynamics and coercive control. And when I was reading it, it's, it's quite triggering to read the book because it's the same process that you have when you have high profile abusers using the family courts or um, you know, abusing the victims into silence. And it was just really shocking to me that you know, you've got evidence time and time again in your book, especially in this case. But because of the power in play and because of prejudice already against certain activists and people on the left, it was able to be used as part of the attack. It felt completely hopeless reading it. It was very depressing. <laughs> I, should, I shouldn't laugh, but that's a, that's a, it was a really, um, you know, I've had several people say those exact words. It's yeah. quite, it, it, yeah. it's also I, a I, 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 Thank you. Yeah, it's brilliant, <laughs> but it's, yeah. It is, no, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, I, I mean, look, I wanted to stop writing about this. I didn't want to write this book. <laughs> like it is, it is depressing. And it is, uh, I had somebody actually who I can't name, um, uh, a former um, senior Labour staffer who said it was triggering. Mm. Because it, it, in all seriousness, it is still a traumatic event, which I think um, the grassroots British left, let's say, to put it that way, has gone through. Um, and uh, you're right. I mean, this is this is a really vital point that you make, Claudia. It's um, it's the abuse and uh, everything they say is sort of projection. It is abuse and gaslighting. Yeah. So I think one of the things that we've said is it's really awful. We do all these podcasts about this issue of anti-Semitism like pie, and it's horrible. But it's better to be doing that than not doing that. If that makes sense, even though it's horrible to talk about. Because at yeah. least we're getting it out. And when I was reading, 
I was thinking like the other thing about lawfare is that it kind of forces you to defend every single claim. So you're kind of going through and saying, actually, there was video of this and and you have to do that. And as soon as you defend against any of the claims, you give them validity. You see them, you present them as worthy of, of, of response. And I think that's part of the problem. I think the, the focus on the disciplinary system is a kind of lawfare because it is a yeah. kind of substructure with the Labour Party that's quasi-judicial and it forces you to go into that kind of mode where it's much harder to kind of have a political response to it. And I think we see it all the way through. I think the EHRC was a kind of lawfare and the use of reports. And we see it actually now, the guy you mentioned, David, David Hurst, is, is making claims of institution anti-Semitism against goldsmiths. And they're doing a report now about Goldsmiths University. I saw that. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. Which is it's a, the same pattern, right? Or over and over and over again. And that so could be got quite report, good, though, because I, right? I went there. I went to Goldsmiths. I, yeah, I did, and, I, I, and I'm, and I'm yeah, Jewish, and I didn't get a great degree. So could <laughs> play it to my favour, that. <laughs> see how that goes. Um, I need my degree reassessed. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I'm Jewish. It's historic so... allegations of anti-Semitism. <laughs> Um, actually, there's a, you you quote the judge um, in your book, uh, and I think this is quite a good definition of warfare. So the judge um, says uh, at the end of the trial, uh, talking about Newmark's case, um, an impermissible attempt to achieve a political end by litigious means. And I think that's quite a nice summing up. Uh, <laughs> The classic line, yeah. My, yeah, yeah, my classic my... judge. I mean, I can't imagine having a conversation with a judge. The way they talk is unbelievable. <laughs> But that was great, you know, that was, uh, yeah, I um, I remember at the time when I reported it, the head, my headline was something like crushing defeat for Israel lobby or something. <laughs> <laughs> I was quite But like you say, uh, as you said, Heather, you know, the damage was done to the union. Mm. And like you say, so are they, uh, do they have a boycott against uh, Israel now? No, they don't. So it doesn't, it's sort of immaterial whether you win or lose the case. But what happens is you have this two, three year battle where your union is associated with anti-Semitism. I, I, I agree to an extent, but I would say it was still an important victory because it would have been so much worse if, if it had been, you know, the other, if the yeah. been the other way around. I suppose yeah. I'm, I'm sort of moving the conversation towards the Labour Party that uh, lost the election, I, we could say. And, and yeah. uh, I mean, we'll talk about the EHRC, like not really saying very much but it doesn't really matter it said something and that was enough for it to be it said the leg pipe broke the law but not because of anti-semitism right doesn't matter in a report about mm -hmm. anti-semitism labor party it said the Labour party <laughs> broke the law that's all it had to do everything uh, I, else i was... i want to make a point about the hrc i want i want to get into that but i, I want to make um a couple of points about what heather said about um, the use of these kind of um, institutions within and reports and this kind of disciplinary apparatus. The first point to make is that it was interesting to see the difference between the problems we had when, while we were still in the Labour Party, uh, because it at, compared to the United States, which, you know, the Democrats were, is not a real political party in the sense that, um, you know, it, there's not really a mass membership like the Labour Party had, although it's now been purged. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of a bad thing, but on the other hand, at least it meant that like 
Bernie Sanders supporters couldn't really be purged to the like the same way we were. They could just sort of be, um, you know, there they could be sort of harassment and smears of them. But it, there, there was no, you know, there was no party dis disciplinary body for the Jewish Chronicle to call up and say, this, this Bernie Sanders supporter said this terrible thing on Facebook that you need to get, uh, you need to get out of the party. And the other thing is to say about that kind of pattern of sort of um, almost uh, guerrilla warfare. Well, well, that's 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 maybe that's the wrong analogy because uh, the guerrillas are usually uh, not the bad guys. But in any case, this this kind of strategy is conscious by pro-Israel lobbyists. And I, there's a bit in the book where I mention a quote from the Al Jazeera's Lobby USA series, which was never actually shown on Al Jazeera, but it was undercover in the in the American Israel lobby. And they talked, they, the, the undercover reporter infiltrated um, the pro-Israel group, uh, the Israel on Campus Coalition, which said that it coordinated with Israel's, um, coordinated its so-called intelligence with Israel's Ministry of Strategic Affairs. Um, and the, there was a classic part of that film where they said that um, the, I've got my book up here, it says, uh, one pro-Israel lobbyist described anti-Semitism allegations as, quote, psychological warfare, it drives them crazy. Um, they, the, 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 the students, because, you know, obviously they're attacking pro-Palestinian or pro-Palestinian students on campus, the students, quote, either shut down or they spend time responding to it and investigating it, and that's incredibly effective, unquote. That's exactly what we saw in the Labour Party. You know, there's a very conscious, deliberate strategy by the pro-Israel lobby. And he was, you know, the guy was talking in terms of like um, counterinsurgency. You know, he was saying, "Oh, I read all these books by these generals and stuff." You know, they have this military jargon. So I want to ask a question that's sort of related to that. Because so you have this. So you talk about like. One of the early cases, which I didn't know so much about, which was the Oxford University, which is kind of like ground zero for the whole project of smearing the Labour Party as anti-Semitic. And it's really interesting what you say. And 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 in that case, you know, you've got very early days, so you've got John Lansman, and it's particularly a couple of his allies who are getting smeared hardcore um, in this. And he comes out fighting for them. And I, and I think that's interesting because a lot of us know what happened, John Lansman's position right now, where he's very friendly with Jewish labour movement, where he's very joined in a lot of the smears. I think like what yeah. you're pointing out is the way in which people shift and the way in which this whole thing eats people up and spits them out. And you say, like, this is a quote, zombie-like, the witch hunt seemed to consume its targets and change them utterly, blackmailed into capitulation. And I just thought it would be good to get your views on, like, you know, why does that happen? Is there any things that we can do to sort of help people to stay strong through these accusations when their friends are accused, when they're accused, because it's really damaging to people. I've seen it with, with comrades who get accused and then, then really struggle with that and feel like maybe they are yeah. guilty. So do you, are there things that you, you can say about that? Yeah, that's, yeah, it's, it's difficult. Like there's, I don't think there's an easy fix to this because, um, and that's something I also get into in the, the chapter later on about uh, the crucible, the chapter called the crucible, where, you know, I'm making these comparisons and it wasn't my original. A lot of people made this comparison, the comparison to the Salem witch trials and the McCarthyist era, because it had the exact same dynamics of 
well, you're a witch slash you're an anti-Semite. Well, where's the evidence? Ah, oh, you're denying that there's a witch, there's an anti-Semite, therefore you're a witch slash anti-Semite. So it's this big circular thing. And um, yeah, there was a lot of fear around it, you know. And I think it's a, there's a larger question here, which um, I would like to see someone like Jackie Walker write. And I, I know she's talked about it, but um, I would like to see someone like Jackie Walker write about this phenomenon whereby, and it's kind of outside the remit of my book, but in British society today, in large part because of the Israel lobby, but not only, I don't think, but but in large part because of the Israel lobby, um, a, a statement that is perceived to be anti-Semitic, whether it is or not, but a, a statement that's perceived to be anti-Semitic is sort of career ending in a way that a statement that is anti-Black racism or anti-Muslim uh, prejudice or, you know, anti-traveller uh, prejudice and so forth isn't. That, that that this kind of hierarchy of racism that the Ford report confirmed exists in the Labour Party is really is not just the Labour Party. It's increasingly British society in general. Um, and why is that? Well, I, I it, it's a big question, and it's kind of it's kind of beyond the remit of my book to answer that question. I think the Israel lobby has a large part to play in that, but I don't think it's just that. I think it's this kind of it's this kind of idea of that this is the anti-Semitism is the real racism, you know, that these the actual racism that exists in our society today in an institutional fashion. It's a way to play that down and deny it is to say, ah, oh, well, all these lefties, they claim to be anti-racist and they're always going on about all this woke stuff, but actually they all hate Jews. And that's why it was, that's a large part of the reason why it was so powerful, because it's just just kind of a general right wing weapon. Yeah. So I don't think it is, I don't like the term hierarchy of racism, because it, it starts from the assumption that anti-Semitism is being treated seriously and everything else isn't. And anti-Semitism is not being dealt with at all in this. So it's just, a, I think it's just racism. I think the reason why anti-Semitism is given a privileged space is because the anti-anti-Semitism movement is simply another way of being racist. And ignoring mm. black people is another way of being racist and being Islamophobic is another way of being racist. And they all are the same. So I don't think, I don't like hierarchy of racism because it implies this is actually about doing anti-Semitism as opposed mm. to creating a narrative anti -anti of, against anti-Semitism, which is actually a form of racism. That makes sense? I think that's a really good point. I mean, you say something about that in your book about, you know, what was happening in the Labour Party and a lot of what is talked about as anti-Semitism. Uh, is to do with Israel. And it becomes often arbitrary whether the person who's being accused of anti-Semitism is Jewish or whether the person who's accusing them of anti-Semitism is Jewish. So you talked about, who is it? Um, Ryan? Uh, oh, Ryan. Yeah, accusing a lot of JVL members, Jewish uh, men and women Labour members, um, of being anti-Semites, even though she's not, and she's not Jewish. And, and they are, and they're talking about their position on Israel. And because she's got a different position, she's calling them anti-Semites. And a lot of them were, were kicked out of the party. It's, it's, it's really, I think like, it's a smokescreen, yeah, to say like, this, this is a problem of anti-Semitism uh, that we can get at the left because the left just don't want to be racist. <laughs> we don't want to be seen to be racist. Um, and this is an issue that, the logic I was thinking about, and maybe 
Um, I don't know. I don't know if this is true, but I was trying to get this sort of sorted in my head what the actual logic was of um, how people can perceive uh, there being a reason why if you are, if you do hold, hold a position uh, that's uh, against kind of where the British government is, say, on Israel, um, even sort of slightly, not not that not that you want to uh, totally get rid of the of Israel as a country, but just having like ideas like boycotts and things. If you take that kind of position and you are Jewish yourself, you can still be an anti-Semite in some people's eyes. Um, I think because the the idea is that there is a there is a position shared amongst the majority of Jewish people in this country. This is how the idea goes, right? that they believe that Israel has a right to exist and they broadly agree with what Israel is doing to maintain its position, right? And so even as a Jewish person, especially not as a Jewish person, if you go against that, you're going against the Jewish community. Now, I don't know, has there been any census on that? I don't know. But I think that's where people generally are, right? And so that... um, But the problem with that is that if that is a bad position, which I think it is, you can't change people's minds about it because you're not allowed to discuss it because that's anti-Semitic. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's like you can't be progressive in that way of like trying to change, even if the Jewish community are, are in a position and it's the wrong position, it, you you would want to sort of foster debate to move people towards the right position. Yeah. You're not allowed to do that because Jews have decided, or, or, or in this position at the moment, which they weren't maybe, as you sort of mentioned in the book, they weren't always... Zionism wasn't always so popular but that's where we are now that's where a lot of Jewish people are and so to discuss that is anti-semitic I suppose that's how I think people look at it yeah you're right I mean that is that is how it's perceived and um I mean I think Heather makes a really good point that this this kind of I like your phrase Heather of anti-anti-semitism that it is kind of it is yeah it is a way to just be racist essentially you know an, an acceptable way to be racist um, because, you know, I mean, I don't get it into it that deeply in my book, but I, I do have the chapter on um, non-Zionist Jews, uh, left-wing, uh, pro-Corbyn Jews within the Labour Party, um, who were dis- disregarded and ignored and maligned, and I, I, as you said, even attacked as anti-Semitic or self-hating Jews. Um, and I, I do show to an extent that, you know, it's not, to an extent, I show the fact that it's not true that all Jews support Israel um, and Zionism. But I mean, to even go beyond that, like the fact is that let's say, let's say for argument's sake, it is true. Like, why does it matter? It doesn't matter. Like, let's say hypothetically, the majority of Britain's Muslims supported Saudi Arabia and supported that. I mean, it's not an it's not a, it's not an exact parallel because Saudi Arabia is a Muslim state in certain ways, but there there are some very important differences with yeah. with, with Israel. Israel is is Jewish in ways that Saudi Arabia is not Muslim. But be that as it may, let's say for majority for the argument's sake, majority of most Britain's Muslims supported Saudi Arabia and supported its you know discriminatory policies, its um, oppressive regime it's war in 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 yemen all these kinds of things would anybody in public life in britain care about that would it, you know would it be perceived as as islamophobic to 
to criticise Saudi Arabia. That's, no, that's, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. But it's going to become hinderphobic to criticise India in a bit, right? The same dynamic is going to start. They, they yeah. are trying that, yeah. yeah. And, and they had, you know, Saudi, some Saudi propagandists do try that. They do say, oh, well, you only criticise. I remember when, when Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post columnist, was brutally murdered by the Saudis in the, the Saudi embassy in uh, in Turkey and dismembered, just, just absolutely killed blatantly on the orders of Mohammed bin Salman. Um, there was a few... Saudi propagandists who, who at first said, oh, this is Islamophobia. Why are you, you know, oh, it wasn't when they were denying it, that it was them and that it was whatever rubbish they were saying. Oh, it was, an, you know, whatever they were saying, they were saying, oh, you're only criticizing us because you're Islamophobic. But nobody bought it. It didn't get any purchase at all. It was it was clearly a load of rubbish. And it's and, you know, I would suggest that it, it a large part of the reason that it happens it's it's so powerful uh, with anti-Semitism and that it is easier to accuse um, Israel's critics of anti-Semitism is because the vast majority of Jews in Britain are white, you know. So that's that's I mean, that's I think that's what what's behind it. But also the Israel lobby is kind of privileged in a way that um, the Saudi lobby isn't, you know, because. I think Israel has a unique kind of position in terms of um, US empire and in terms of its usefulness to uh, Western foreign policy. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a, there's a few sort of questions that we were thinking about um, before we did this that I think we should get into. Um, yeah. One of them, because I think we need to go back a little bit, is um, you mentioned um, the lobby the Al Jazeera TV show that was uh, pretty pretty well known to to Labour members at the time. Um, it was based in the UK. I didn't know there was a US version, uh, but you meant you cover it in your book. That's there's some really interesting stuff about that. But there's also some really uh, interesting ideas about. Firstly, um, how, as you say, how anti-Semitism smears worked in the US or didn't work so well. Um, there was a much more of a pushback against it. Um, on that, I think it's interesting to see that other, if it wasn't anti-Semitism, there were other smears that worked. I was watching a, um, podcast with some American lefties the other day, and they were talking about just, just basically Russia, be Russia gate kind of stuff. Basically in the U S now as here, you know, if you're, if you're on the left and you have a leftist position, you can be just smeared as an anti-Semite because you supported a B or C, uh, you know, somebody just for your support of somebody else, Corbyn, in fact. Uh, and in, in the US, it's often the case that people just say that, oh, you, you're, a, you're a Russian bot or you're a Putin puppet for making left-wing points, right? And that's there become a kind about of... Bernie bros as well. There was lots about Bernie bros and narratives about people being abusive on Twitter yeah. and, you know, being racist, being sexist particularly the second time Bernie ran in kind of attitudes to Elizabeth Warren and people being, you know, responding to her on Twitter with a little snake emoji was seen as abusive. Um, so I think that, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of smears. And like, there is one explanation of, as to why there was a lot of anti-Semitism smears, which is the smears of Jeremy Corbyn as sexist or Jeremy Corbyn as a bully didn't work. 
And if they had worked, we wouldn't have seen the kind of anti-Semitism witch hunt. But they did work. And Mm. why did they work, I think, is a real interesting point that you kind of try and argue, you give some reasons why you think it might have been, why why it was so effective. Um, I think it's still quite a puzzle to me exactly what was going on, particularly when you lay out things like what was revealed in the UK version of the lobby about what was happening in the Labour Party. And you say in the book, so what there was, um, um, uh, what's his name? The uh, the main... Yeah, he, he was uh, revealed to be working for the Israeli embassy. No, he was actually working, he was for, working Israeli for Israeli embassy. embassy. He was revealed yeah, to be... Um, plotting to, well, sort of jo- half joking, plotting to overthrow a, a minister, right? Yeah, a Tory minister. Yeah, but but also a lot of his interactions in in the uh, the lobby expose are him discussing things with people in sort of Jewish labor or Israel pro Israel labor organizations, right? Yeah, to create yeah problems for Corbyn's leadership and people that are around Corbyn, right? Yeah. And this is all revealed. Uh, the Tories want to, the government and I guess Labour wanted to uh, wash their hands of it. He was sent back to Israel and they said, our case closed, right? But there was a call, I didn't realise this, you say in the book, there was a call for an investigation internally in Labour into what mm. was going on with basically the Israel lobby, with Mm. Um, people from the Israel embassy and the Israel government networking, giving information, um, plotting, I guess, yeah, with uh, organizations within the Labour Party to bring down the, the Labour leadership. And you and you talk about this being, you know, basically a foreign power. And in this case, in many, many sort of Labour um, leaderships and Tory leaderships have a, a very pro-Israel line and uh, with the, the Israeli government on, on many things. Corbyn wasn't. Um, so in that exactly. case, it was an aggressive uh, it's foreign power in, uh, meddling in internal affairs of the Labour Party. They didn't yeah. investigate it, though. Yeah. What's really interesting about that, and it, you're right, it's really, it's, it's really easy to forget that statement. And it was actually made by Emily Thornberry, of all people, you know, who later came out as this great supporter of uh, Labour Friends of Israel and said she was a Zionist and all this kind of stuff. Well, they all did um, at the end. That goes back to Heather's point about people sort of, John Landsman. I mean, you have to sort of like, like Rebecca Long-Bailey, you have to sort of do that in the end, right? To, to stay in. Well, that's what it seems. Um, so it's interesting because, so I remember at the time, because obviously, you know, at the time back at the beginning of 2017, I knew the Al Jazeera film was about to drop because obviously, you know, I, I was in it. I was, they, I hadn't been able to say anything. It was a big secret and all that. And I was on camera, one of the talking heads in the film. So I knew it was about to come out. And the, the first, before the first episode dropped, they clearly, Al Jazeera fed some of, briefed some of what's going to be in the film to the Daily Mail of all people. Well, it was the Mail on Sunday, but they fed it to the Mail on Sunday and it worked. They got a really good front page on the Mail on Sunday and they did that by focusing on the Conservative Party aspects of the film. So, yes, Shima Shot was conspiring with uh, a civil servant who was working for a pro-Israel MP, this Israel lobby MP, Rob Halfon, who's you know incredibly part of uh, Tory Fre- Conservative Friends of Israel and all this, 
Um, and he's very well known for making pro-Israel speeches in Parliament. And so his aide, uh, who's also a civil servant, and Shai Massot were caught on camera. And I, you know, they yes, they were using kind of jokey language, but they were very serious about it. They wanted to take down um, Alan Duncan. Um, you know, they wouldn't have liked Crispin Blunt either. They had a list of MPs they wanted to be taken down, not, you know, assassinated, but politically taken down. And, um, you know, she, the, the civil servant Maria Strizolo, um, she said, uh, oh, we can have a little scandal, perhaps. And that's quite, you know, again, lighthearted language, but she's serious. You know, if, if whether or not they actually got down to the nitty gritty of being able to do it, I, it's hard to say because obviously this came out. But that's really insidious what she was saying, because, of course, Alan Duncan was the first, you know, whatever you think of him politically. And I, I don't think a lot politically, although I respect his, his opinion on Palestine to an extent. Um, and he's, to be honest, he's quite a forthright guy. He said some really interesting stuff in his memoir, uh, but although obviously he played a very bad part um, in the uh, arrest of Julian Assange. But anyway, be that as it may, he was one of the first... I think he was the first Tory MP to be come out as openly gay. So what she's saying is possibly an allusion to that, which is quite insidious, really. Um, and so, yes, so anyway, to get back to the point is that um, the initial headlines of this film, it was quite a big headlines for a few days in mainstream media, um, were all focused on the Tory party and what they were trying to do to manufacture this kind of uh, you know, plot or how to take the words were to take down um, Alan Duncan, who was a serving senior government minister at the time by uh, a hostile foreign power. Now, you know, so what um, the initial response of Jeremy Corbyn's front bench was to, was to call for this inquiry, as you mentioned, and Emily Thornberry's statement was quite strong. She said, quote, she called it, quote, improper interference in our democratic politics and by Israel. And she said, quote, this is a national security issue, you know? So that, that is really strong language. And then, and, you know, Jeremy Corbyn similarly called for an inquiry. But then a few days later, when the first episode of the film dropped, that all seemed to go away from Labour, unfortunately, for whatever reason, I, I can't say why, you know, um, I, I don't know. I, I can't say as in, I, I don't know. Um, because, you know, a lot of Jeremy Corbyn's circle are kind of gagged from talking because of various legal cases that are going on at the moment and so forth. Um, so it's hard to know all the internal dynamics exactly, but for whatever reason it went away. What I suspect, and I say in the book, is that once it became clear that most of the, the lobby series was actually focused on the Labour Party, that made it harder, it probably made it harder for them to um, call for, well, if they were going to, you know, sustain that call for an investigation into improper interference in our democratic politics and in the Labour Party, now where would that have to start? It would have to start with um, Labour Friends of Israel, number one, which is very clearly a front group for the Israeli embassy, as is very clear in the film, uh, and the Jewish Labour movement. So, you know, at the time when Corbyn was trying to sweep all this um, anti-Semitism smear campaign under the rug, that was not going to be the way he was going to go, unfortunately. Okay, so, yeah, I, I, I was interested in, like, the way you, in the book, identify these kind of turning points like that. 
I guess, key points where something different could have been done. Like, I think, like, there was a different choice and that, well, that wasn't the road they went down. Another one is with, with Margaret Hodge and when she called um, Jeremy Corbyn a racist and anti-Semite in Parliament and then repeated that in a, in a newspaper interview and it's like disciplinary action could have been taken against her, legal action could have been taken against her. And, and I, a phrase you have is like the muscular counter-narrative was never built which is absolutely the problem. And one of the things that we've been trying to do partly through the podcast, mm. I think through our own work on different channels, is to build a muscular account narrative. And the book is doing that, obviously. Um, but I also feel like I'm not sure how much things could have been different. You know, like, given the way the party was, I mean, the party staff was all opposed to Corbyn. The NEC was opposed to Corbyn until 2018. So for most of his leadership. Um, the PLP was obviously really against. The grassroots was equivocal on this issue, and the representatives of the grassroots, the dominant one with momentum, was really equivocal. I mean, how far could Corbyn have just stood up at the beginning and said, oh, fuck you to the Jewish Labour movement? Could he have, like, <laughs> said, Kenderson's staying in the party, I don't care that most Yellow. of the Jewish left don't support him, <laughs> just he's staying. Um, I'm going to sue that fuck out of Margaret Hodge, even though Donald <laughs> thinks that's a bad idea. You know, how, how much were these realistic choices of things you say off? Well, this, um, you know, I'm laughing, yeah. but um, I, I agree to an extent. Um, what I would um, disagree with slightly is that I don't think the grassroots was, I don't think there's much evidence the grassroots was equivocal on the issue. I think there was certainly doubt uh, around it. But if you look at, I mean, Look, who knows how much credibility you should put into opinion polls, as we know. But if you look at the polling of the membership, the Labour Party membership, all the way through, it never, ever believed any of this. It never. And this, to be honest, I I mean, look, as you know, I mean, I can say this now. As you know, I've reported this all along. Right. And my great fear all along was and, you know, maybe this this was wrong on my part in the sense that. that uh, I should have had other fears, but my great fear was that the grassroots would start to believe this, that, oh, you know, maybe there's something in this and, you know, Corbyn, you know there's no smoke without fire. Maybe Jeremy Corbyn is um, an anti-Semite. And I, there's, I don't think there's any evidence that I know of that the, his, his, his supporters, his mass base of supporters ever believed that. Um, so, you know, I, it, I, and I quote some of the polling and I, I did several articles throughout it, uh, throughout the, the period, looking at the polling and it always showed very big majorities saying, and actually got, it got more and bigger and bigger saying they didn't believe it. And it, uh, uh, by the end, it was, um, there was like 90% of Momentum members saying it was, say, they said even more than I would have said, which was that, that like it was all invented or either invented or exaggerated. So, like, um, I don't think I don't think there's much evidence of that. Oh, I, but, I think on the ground, I don't know. Just I'm talking about my own CRP, and right. there were people who had lots of there lots of people who had doubts. So, lots of, of people course. who advocated for the IHRA definition. This was strategically the best thing to do. There were lots of people who said, "Well, you know, we should listen to what the Jewish community is saying, as well as knowing that this isn't as big a problem as as people are saying." So that's what I mean. Like, if yeah. you ask a stark question, do you think this is all it's cracked up to be? People will say, no, it isn't. But when you're into the detail, it was tough, like, making the case sometimes with people, even mm. people who were solid. 
Um, a lot of people who are taking the Owen Jones position of maybe we should soften what we say, not mention the word Zionism. These kind of things were quite common. That split that you say that the the um, the, the people who were on the other side of this were trying to create between softer and harder support for Corbyn, softer and harder support for for um, Palestinians. I think was really yeah, it was, was really a real line. Yeah. It, it was successful in that sense. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, there was, there was, there was, like, you don't have to convince the majority that it's true. There just has to be enough doubt spread. And yeah, it was, it was definitely successful in that, in that respect, um, which, you know, was again, a similar dynamic to, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the UCU case, because yeah, it was a very similar dynamic, dynamic there, where, you know, yes, we've kind of proven this is all nonsense, but at the same time, um the damage has been done yeah I, I think you know look I'm not a politician I'm a reporter you know I, I just call it like I like I see it um maybe I'm right maybe I'm wrong I try and get it as right as I can in, in terms of the facts or I mean look I, I know that it Corbyn was in a I I I very much, although I think he made mistakes and I put them in the book I still I like the guy you know I've got a really soft spot for him I think he's basically a good guy I think his heart's in the right place and I think um he's even got the right political instincts a lot of the time um and I I don't know whether he would have that the, the fact is I don't know I don't know whether he would have been successful or not but you know the old saying of like if you if you don't fight you know if you fight you might not win that's for sure but if you don't fight you're definitely going to lose and on this issue and this issue alone, I don't think Corbyn's team fought. They really, they really conceded the field. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking about it again in terms of the abuse dynamics here. And obviously, in a in a situation of abuse, people have different reactions. You know, they fight, they fight, or they fawn, so they concede. So Corbyn has obviously sort of, I think he tried to ignore it for a while, and then he sort of conceded towards the end. But I kind of, I do get what you're saying, Heather, because. Although obviously it makes sense to fight it in the climate that he was in, would that not have immediately been used against him? I mean, it, it would have been possibly even worse if he if he'd fought back in that climate. I mean, that's what I felt when I was kind of reading it. I think that's true, absolutely. But at the same time, what would it have done to us? What would, and I don't mean us four. I mean, mm. you know, all the people that we know. His his grassroots base. That was always his superpower. Mm. That was that was why he won in the first place. It wasn't because of fucking Owen Jones and uh, Aaron Bastani and these people. That was why he won the leadership because he had 200,000 people joining the Labour Party, even though a lot of them probably hated the Labour Party, just to support him. If he'd, if he'd said, fuck off the Jewish Labour movement, <laughs> it is Corbyn, it is very polite Corbyn way. Yeah. If he'd done that, then it would have it would have um it would have it would have energized his supporters. And that was what was missing in 2019. That was what that was what wasn't there in 2019, that was there in 2017. Well, that's a bit I disagree with you about. Okay. That's okay. the one little bit of a 2019 was a phenomenal campaign. There was more people out, there was more energy than I've ever seen before in my life. So I don't think that energy was lost. It was tougher. It was horrible. 
I mean, it was really cold. It was really dark. It was raining a lot of the time when people were canvassing. When you would got, get people on the phone to talk to them, it was horrible. A lot of times because of Brexit, sometimes because of Kashmir, and sometimes because of anti-Semitism, and sometimes just because of a kind of general toxicity that attached the Labour Party and a lack of trust. But I, the energy was totally there. I don't think people felt like... I still don't think people feel like Jeremy's let, let them down. I think that's why I'm, we're being a bit hard on you on this bit. It's because I no, think fine, I it? feel like you're a little bit tough on Jeremy in the book, and maybe I, I kind of <laughs> feel a need to kind of. I think we all feel a need to defend Jeremy, which I think is really interesting psychologically about where he sits in uh, in our imaginations. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that, but I do think the energy was there, and I I don't know. I go back and forth on it about whether it was possible because ultimately what had to be said was Zionism is racism, and therefore we won't have organisations like. Labour Friends of Israel in the Labour Party. That's the only consistent way of doing it that I can say. And I, I would have liked to have seen Jeremy Corbyn say Zionism is racism, but I can accept that he wasn't going to say that. I, I don't think that's so much the issue. I think the issue is more that, very simply, that he took a massive L on the issue. That's <laughs> the, basically, you know, and he didn't fight, you know. We're in the 2017, on that issue specifically, in the 2017 election, I'm sure he had lots of people around him after the Manchester bombing saying, oh, look, you have to drop all this anti-war stuff and just yeah. condemn condemn the bomb. But he didn't. He didn't listen to those siren voices that I'm sure were there. And he said he just came out with the, with the traditional principled anti-war position of, yes, of course, the bombers are the ones responsible. But at the same time, British foreign policy plays a factor in this. And unfortunately, these things are going to keep happening until we get out of the Middle East, essentially, is, is what he said. And that was massively popular you know people just the electorate in general i don't mean us like campaigners and stuff i mean in the electorate and so you know if jeremy corbyn was able to stick the problem was it was a kind of there was a i, I hear what you're saying um i'll think about that more um but what what it, to an extent i don't want to i feel really bad making this comparison because it's not fair but there was <laughs> And maybe slightly little bit of a Neil Kinnicky aspect where he was kind of backpedaling a bit. And so that is not, I don't think that is a way to win, essentially. That's what I'm trying to get at. But for me, I mean, I, I agree with you, but I feel like it's a bit of a paradox. Like, Heather, it was so interesting what you were saying about how we feel the need to kind of jump in there. And I think this is something you say in the book, Acer, as well, about how the left are such good targets for this. Because I think the fact that Corbyn is, he is respectful in what he says, you know, sometimes he's not forceful enough as we would want him him to be on issues. But that's part of his appeal because he Absolutely. listens to people. And it's, it's like a yeah. paradox, isn't it? Because sometimes I've sat there and thought, well, I wish you'd just say it. But then I feel like, I don't know, I, a lot of people argue, don't they, they should have been, he should have been much harder from the start on his critics. But then I, I just don't know if he would have the same. It's, it's just a paradoxy kind of thing. I like that about him. I like that certain people on the left are able to listen and they want to, to learn and they want to try and improve. And, and I feel like it's just this awful cycle because it doesn't work when you're up against bad faith actors. And I don't yeah. really think we have any sort of playbook for how to do that at all. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right about that. It was definitely a massive part of his appeal was that he wasn't a normal politician who um, would have just sort of barged his way through the Labour Party, I suppose. But then again, Ken Livingstone 
was I mean he wasn't a normal politician but in his prime you know he was a, a political fighter and he was massively popular you know he was he was incredibly popular and he won even without the Labour Party's backing eventually taken down by the right-wing media of course um partly because of an anti-semitism smear campaign actually which I, I didn't really get I didn't get into the book um you know you have to cut these things off somewhere um but but yeah I mean it, yeah, you're right. This, this is a really good point, Claudia. Like, it is, it is a paradox that he was, um, he was different, and that was a large part of his popular appeal. That he was. I mean, I, I said this on another podcast the other day. He's kind of, although he's not a religious man, and he's not probably not technically a pacifist. He comes from that kind of sort of English radical Christian pacifism tradition, where, um, which is that's that's kind of his whole vibe, and that's great, and I respect that and everything, but. To to and I, I honestly I'm not that sounds a bit flippant but <laughs> I do I think that's an honourable um, position, um, but you know it, unfortunately it got to the point where it just was leading to for whatever reasons it was leading to ridiculous decisions where you're basically embracing your enemies and keeping your friends away like for example everybody in J, JVL or most people most of the leading people in JVL had known Corbyn personally for years. Corbyn didn't hold one public meeting with JVL. He was, I mean, I know from, from sources that like he, um, there was essentially clandestine meetings going on, clandestine contacts going on. Um, and they just couldn't, why, why, you know? And at the same time he was having, uh, him and John McDonald were going to the Jewish Chronicle and the Jewish News to be interviewed because of whoever was giving them the advice, you know, John Landsman was saying, oh, you've got to engage with the Jewish community. And then that end, you know, how did that how did that work out for him? You know, it ended up with these hostile front pages saying not good enough, and you know, just attacking him more. So you know, it, you, you to an extent you're becoming your own worst enemy, and it, it's um, you can't win elections that way. You know, I was going to say I think the the problem that you face or we all face is not really knowing exactly what the effect was right because your argument of um like that um like uh, capitulating to this position was so damaging um is built off the back of the it was the anti-semitism issue that itself was damaging to the movement right if you say well actually nobody cared and it was all brexit then does it really matter that he lost so much ground on this? Um, and so without really knowing, because I think there's, what's really interesting is at the end of it, you talk about that um, census that was done about the 2019 election and why people didn't vote for Labour and didn't vote for Corbyn. And some of, the, some of those questions, the way they're phrased are quite interesting. So I think that the top one was just a general lack of leadership or him not having leadership quality, right? Which could, feeds into not being able to deal with his own backbench or able to fight big narratives in the media like anti-Semitism. So the, I think that certainly like his reputation was tarnished, um, whether you thought he was an anti-Semite or whether you thought it was anti-Semitism in Labour, his inability to deal with that issue uh, did play into the election to some degree, but, to, but we don't know exactly how much. So to wager whether it was worth doing that or not is very difficult without knowing exactly what was lost in the process. I think what's definitely a big problem is where is what's happened since then. 
and how because they lost so if Labour had won that election it wouldn't have mattered at all right that he'd given so much ground to all of these things right um yeah, it, would. it would because it would have been used to bring him down after he won Oh yeah, apart from that, that's the night. Yeah, just that small thing, right? Small thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, but as it is, um, yeah, that's true. Um, but the, the the losing of the election, whether it was because of anti-Semitism or not, it's now part of the narrative that the the, the good people of Britain saw that there was an anti-Semite trying to become the leader of the you know the prime minister, and they said no, not not on my watch, right? And that's part of the narrative now. And so yeah. going forward. Like the left wing, the Labour Party is just, you know, you can't do anything because you immediately get expelled for being anti-Semite. So all of that is now sort of written in as as the sort of part of British contemporary life. Um, yeah, and it, it's worse than the Labour Party because it's affected everything. Yeah. yeah. Like it's affected like the IHRA has, you know, just, and I mentioned the case about the big ride for Palestine in the book that, you know, this is gone far beyond the Labour Party now, and and it was it was always about more than the Labour Party anyway, and more about Jeremy Corbyn in the first place, which is why you know I followed this case for so long as I did because I could see it was going to have negative effects on the Palestine Solidarity Movement and on British life really in general and and just the world really because it's become because of this the victory the Israel lobby's victory against Jeremy Corbyn. As they claimed it themselves, it's not Aislinn Stanley that's saying that. I'm just reporting what they're saying. Um, that is a massive win for them, and they've moved on to other areas of life. They've moved on to, you know, universities. Goldsmiths, yeah, gold. <laughs> well, the whole of the whole of NUS, right? Just... University of Bristol, yeah. the NUS, yes, exactly. Roger Waters. They're trying to stop Roger Waters from performing in Manchester. Yeah. Um, you know. Everything, you know, so, I mean, they're going to have a problem with Roger Waters because he, you know, he doesn't have a, a political party that can kick him out. <laughs> He's got enough money where they can, he can, uh, he can sue them. Uh, and it, like he did it successfully in Frankfurt. So, um, yeah, but it's, it's a massive problem and it's, um, it's going to be an ongoing issue, which, which is why, really why I wrote the book, because I, I, I mean, it was, took me ages to get this book published. Like, as you, you can imagine, that it was difficult to find a publisher. Yeah. Um, I, and I actually started, I mean, you know, I've been doing, it's based on my reporting, as you know, but the actual writing of the book itself began at the end of 2019. It didn't take long to write, certainly not the first draft. It was the, the pub, finding a publisher was what took a long time to write. But I, when I started writing it, Corbyn was still a leader, but I could see where it was going. And I could see that, you know, he was almost certainly going to lose the election and that um, that was going to have, after everything that's happened with this smear campaign, which is not about anti-Semitism, as we all know, really, um, about genuine, it's not about, certainly not about genuine anti-Semitism, um, that it was going to have a massive negative effect on everything. And, and here we are, you know, four years later, and it's still two and three and a half years later, and it's still still going on. Yeah, I mean, there's a, it's really interesting what it's doing. I mean, disturbing, but, but there was like, there was sort of, just before the local elections in London, what we, last year, I guess, um, there was reports done on different boroughs by a kind of consultancy, which help developers get things through planning. And so I read the one on Hackney, because I thought that's interesting. 
And they, the, the one in Hackney says that the council is resolutely pro-development, which of course means pro-developer. And it yeah. kind of goes into some nitty-gritty on this. It says it's despite some campaigns in the local area um, on housing. And also despite the fact that there's been um, a kind of left-wing influx into the Labour Party. And it says the National Party is now helping out because they've um, suspended the former Secretary of Hackney South. Heather Mendick. And it's like, it's like, it, it's so weird because, of course, this is not about anti Semitism, you say. It's really, it's about housing. I mean, a lot of this is being, I know locally, um, and uh, lots of examples of where the, the most pro housing campaign um, councillors are got on anti Semitism. Because what the councils don't want is people are going to challenge their pro development agenda. So, and, and anti Semitism is an easy thing to latch onto. But because so many people were so equivocal about anti-Semitism. The fact that it's been allowed to play out in this kind of horrific way in Labour that's just gone so over the top, so all-consuming, means it now has much more power when it's being turned on the, the student movement, which is now is, isn't really about the left, isn't really about stopping housing campaigning in local governments and all that kind of stuff and stopping anti-capitalist politics in national government. Now it is about Palestine again and about... BDS, but it's harder to deal with because we've accepted so much, we've conceded so much ground. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to hear. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's just another example. It's an example. I mean, I call the, in the book, I call the Israel lobby, uh, the vanguard, a reactionary vanguard of uh, of the right, really, of, of certainly of the Labour Party right. And the state of Israel and before the state of Israel was founded, the Zionist movement always tried to portray itself as a useful tool to empire. So the, you know, Theodore Herzl actually began starting to reach out to the Ottoman Empire, didn't get very far with it, but the once the British occupied Palestine, you know, famously, um, they were just immediately before there was the Balfour Declaration and they always tried, the Zionist movement always tried to portray itself as a useful um, tool to empire and to sort of latch onto it in that way and to um, improve its fortunes in that way. And I think, I, 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 I mean, I, it's not, I think the history of that actually worked out to be more complex than that. Um, and that, you know, at one point, the Zionist movement, the Zionist militias were actually at war with the British Empire within Palestine, as we know. Um, and I mean, look, my view is that is that um, this is beyond the scope of the book, but I don't think it's necessarily that simple as um, Israel being um, always a useful tool for the US empire. Um, I think there's been some, there's definitely been some contradictions there, like we see with, for example, um, there was the whole, uh, uh, the whole Jonathan Pollard scandal of the uh, American who sold, uh, he was a part of US naval intelligence who sold American uh, military secrets to the Israelis and so forth. And um, so there's there's complicated there's a complicated history there and there's contradictions but nonetheless there's no doubt that at times uh, that israel has portrayed itself and has been useful for uh, british empire and for 
the American empire at times. And certainly now that is how, you know, there's a lot of ideological alignment in the United States with, with Israel on the political level. Um, and I think that is a large part of this because, you know, the Labour Party right is incredibly Atlanticist. And so now the, the role that, that um, the role that Zionism plays within the Labour Party, especially, is as this kind of um, vanguard of imperialism, really. It's such a useful weapon. It's such a useful weapon for them to be able to say, you know, attack. How, like, that's, I mean, I'm, I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm staggered to hear that, that they're using the, you know, the fact that you remove from the Labour Party as some kind of weapon against you in, in, a, in a, a campaign against uh, predatory developers, I presume. It's, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, the more it's, they, so useful, it's so useful for them, they're not going to give it up. Yeah, it has to be full. Exactly. You know, it's so convenient. As soon as they want to get rid of anybody because they're worried about them on any level in the Labour Party, they can always find a link. And it's so effective because I think if you're Jewish, it's a little bit easier because I don't think, it, I think if you're Jewish, you don't think, I wonder if I'm anti Semitic. I wonder if they have a point. You just kind of know you're not. Whereas if someone's not Jewish, they think, well, maybe I did do blood libel without realising it. Blood libel in my life. Yeah, yeah, because people people generally don't understand. I'll tell you a really funny story, right? I heard the other day of, um, I, I don't think I can name it, but I, there's, a, there's a bookshop in London and um, they, ha they have a lot of pro-Palestinian uh, books there. And um, they, they had a, a flag up in the window um, saying free Palestine boycott Israel, something along those lines. And um, they started to get, um, clearly the Israel lobby like mobilized against them in some way on one of their mailing lists somewhere. And one of the various Zionist organizations, I don't know which one, but they had a steady flow of, of people um, with all due respect to nice Karens, but Karens, Coming along, <laughs> <laughs> I, feel, I feel quite bad for people who are called Karen, but anyway, you, you know what I mean. Karen's coming along um, and uh, saying, this is terrible, you have to remove this flag. And they, the shopkeepers were like engaging with them and saying, why? And I, I was told the other day, right, that one of these people clearly had, like didn't have a clue. And she, she responded to say, you know, the shopkeeper said, well, why, why do I have to take this down? And the person said, Oh, I don't know. It's anti-something. So they didn't even know what anti-anti-Semitism. They didn't even know the word anti-Semitism, let alone understand what it was. It's anti-something. <laughs> so it's like it's it's yeah, it's crazy. This is where we've reached. I mean, I think for for my generation, I mean, I I, I wasn't aware of this as much as like Heather and, and Daniel were, and I kind of kind of got interested in it when it was almost like. It was at quite an end point, really, wasn't it? It was quite far in. And certainly in our generation, it, it, you did become quite fearful, genuinely. You know, I, I remember when I first started learning about this, I started learning about it because I was thinking, oh, gosh, I support Corbyn. Am I anti-Semitic? <laughs> I know that sounds really bizarre, but I was, I was thinking, and I didn't want to be like that because, you know, you should unlearn things like that. And it was through that research I was doing that I started to think, wait, wait a minute, something's off here. And that's how I found Heather's work and got into Heather's thing. But for our generation, especially, I think we're so keen on the left to not, it, it's an awful thing to be called, but more than that, you don't want to be causing harm to anyone. So it's a particularly wicked thing to do because it, it scares you away. And 
it, a lot of younger people now, especially, you know, when you talk about Jeremy Corbyn, they've almost made his name like a kind of dangerous association with anti-Semitism. So people who are new into politics and younger are almost fearful. And I felt that myself when I first watched Heather's video. I feel awful now because I love you, Heather. I think you're awesome. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh, these people are saying she's a she's a crank. She's this and she's that. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I, I better be careful with this that I'm watching <laughs> in case I get sucked in. And I was sucked in because you were telling the complete truth. But there is a fear you're around it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think there is, I think the early cases as Definitely. well. Like um the Ken Livingston case, which you go into a lot in the book, is still a really complicated one for a lot of people. I think for, for those sorts of reasons yeah. that it's like you know it's talking about things that people don't know much about, which is the relationship between Zionists and Nazism, which is complicated and contested and all of that, mm. and, and people feel very uncomfortable talking about it, and I think a lot yeah. of people feel clear because of it. And yeah. I, I do get into the detail. I, I really like that chapter. That was probably my favourite to write because I. I had to get into the research in a way it gave me opportunities to get into that research in some detail in a way that I hadn't to you know a great extent and um but and I think I do prove like historically that what Kelly has said was basically correct but I think more important than that is just the fact of like well let's say he was wrong like let's say he got something wrong why does that, and then that mean he has to be expelled from the Labour Party? Like, why does Diane Abbott, why is the immediate response of what Diane, let's say Diane Abbott's letter was, was badly worded. I'm not taking a position one way or the other. But so what? Like, why, why are they then immediately suspended from the, why is that the response? You know, it's, 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 why can't we discuss these things? You know, you know, it's not, it, it, it's history. It's, 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 um, or definitions of, of racism, you know, these things should be, and that fear that you described, Claudia, is absolutely real, you know, definitely. And it's, um, it's very big. And I, I, I've heard it from so many people, the same thing from, from my sources over the years. Um, and uh, I know the, the process that you mean as well of, um, you know, seeing people kind of online who write about or talk about these things. Um, and it's specifically around Palestine as well, especially um, where it's people are, le are legitimized. And yeah, there is there is weird stuff on the Internet that is dodgy, you know. And so, of course, you have to discern what's what's right from wrong um, and what's correct and what's incorrect. And there is racism out there and there is anti-Semitism out there. Of course, it exists, real anti-Semitism. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I guess I'm just trying to challenge the... Uh, silencing of discussion of a lot of these things. I think that comes back to, and I found this when I was sort of trying to get my head around it, sort of during the Corbyn era, like not having an official, like a, you say, a robust response from the leadership. So you watch, you know, people like, oh, you should watch the lobby, or you should read this article by some guy that's, you know, can't get published in the Guardian, so they've got their own blog, and like, I don't know who this guy is. It's a weird blog. It's a weird Al Jazeera. It's a weird TV channel. Like, it's kind of who? What is this? Is this like just some kind of fantasy bullshit um, to cover the fact that Jeremy Corbyn's anti-Semite and no one wants to admit it, right? And that's you get into that headspace. Yeah. And, and particularly as there was no, you didn't hear anything from Corbyn or from the, the Corbyn's team or from, and you get into this a bit 
some of the more legitimate left-wing uh, media figures who we shall name today. But we'll name we them have to because we 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 have a rule, don't we? That we have to mention Owen Jones in every podcast. Yeah, we so have to mention Owen Jones. Yeah, arbitrary yeah. to what I was saying. Just yeah, just mention just list some people that we have to mention. Owen Jones, we have to mention. Yeah, um, Rachel Riley. Um, she didn't. Uh, she she didn't help <laughs> the situation. <laughs> I, I thought Countdown's pretty. That's a that's a mainstream show, you know. I've, uh, I've just done a text search, and I didn't I didn't mention her in my book. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Get ready. I think that was very wise. Yeah, uh, yeah, probably. Well, Don't mention her in the book, but mention my Gapes. It didn't come up, you know. Um, I, I suppose I didn't want to feed her ego. There might be an illusion there somewhere to her. I mean, she's not really in I the Labour Party stuff, is she? <laughs> no, she's not really in the Labour Party circuit. <laughs> Maybe she's AI. <laughs> Look, we, we've been going on for ages. Um, Asa, yeah. we should, you should come back on. We should have yeah. another conversation. This was great. I would love to, yeah. Um, yeah we didn't even get this, to, this... to speak about Ruth Smeave. So there's an hour right no. there to be done another time. Oh, yeah, certainly. Ruth Smeave, Strictly Protect, yeah. yeah. Strictly Protect. <laughs> <laughs> You have to say in the middle, it's Ruth Strictly Protects Smith. Oh, I thought it was like Ruth Smith Strictly Protects. It's like, it's, it's kind of like Esquire or whatever. It's like, yeah. uh... <laughs> um, anyway, so your book came out yesterday, Weaponizing That's Anti-Semitism. Right. Is, is it out in actual shops? Is um, it, is yes. It... Yeah. Yes. Do you want to name yes. them or are you scared they're going to be? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, look, if uh, anyone is out there and I haven't seen it in the world in bookshops, but yes, it should be stopped from yesterday in bookshops. But you can also um, get it online where? That's right. Um, allbooks.com, orbooks.com. And, so, you know, so we'll, put, we'll links put links. In, yeah. Obviously, this is a podcast and you should listen to it as a podcast. You shouldn't be watching this video. But if you are watching the video version, there'll be links to all of this. I'm also going to put a link. So, um, Asa, you write for Electronic Intifada. That's where your main sort of place of, of yeah. writing things is, right? Um, yeah, and I, I have a I have a sub stack as well where okay. people can pay me money and subscribe. All, all my stuff goes out on, on via email and the website on there, which is asawinstanley.substack.com. Also, Electronic Intifada have a YouTube channel, and there was you made a great video about a year or maybe two years ago, maybe five years ago. Fuck COVID, I don't know when it was, but you made a video about. <laughs> Kind of some of the stuff you covered in the book, going yeah. through the Oxford Union stuff um, and things that we talked about today and, and how this sort of narrative built up. It's a really good video. I'll put a link to that as well. And um, is that everything? Do you guys have a Patreon or anything? We do. Daniel's very reluctant to mention that. But yeah, he, has, got, he got has a Patreon, yeah. Heather, Let's see, I, I, I work with Americans a lot of the time. That's why I say things like you guys, right? So yeah. um, they're not shy about advertising these things. You have you have to do it. You have to yeah. do it. You know. Heather is um, a patron of my. Yes, <laughs> I, I signed up as a patron before I, we started the podcast, and I haven't cancelled. So I now fund my own work. Thing. It's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. So I have what to is buy it? Heather, like whenever I meet Heather, I have to buy coffee and everything because I'm yeah. I'm in, totally indebted to her. I, I feel like it would be if I actually cancelled now, then like you'd make that would be crushing. It, it would. I, I feel bad. John is crushing to me. <laughs> well, Daniel, since you're shy, I will tell your listeners and viewers that they should go to patreon.com slash 
complaints on a plate and sign up as a monthly supporter of this wonderful podcast. Thank you very much, Asa. I'm going <laughs> to click keep that clip. I'm going to keep record yeah. that and put that at the end of all our videos. You should. Yeah. All right. Okay. Great. Um, okay. Great. Uh, and as always, should we give a, a, a nice wave? And yeah. 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 All right. Yep. See you later.